uh, the 16th Psalm, and we'll read the verses uh, that we have here, 11 verses. It is a miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. My soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord, my goodness extendeth not to thee, but to the saints that are in the earth, and to the excellent, in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied, that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names into my lips. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance, and my cup thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places, yea, I have a goodly heritage. I will bless the Lord, who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, and neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Amen. And may the Lord bless the reading of his precious word this evening. This 16th Psalm was penned by David. It contains that title, A Miktam of David. And of course, we ask the question, well, what is this Miktam? And it has a reference to a writing, an engraving, or a poem. It was Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator, who said that this psalm is entitled Miktam, which some translate as a golden psalm, a very precious one, more to be valued by us than gold, yea, than much fine gold, because it speaks so plainly of Christ and his resurrection. And we see that verse number nine, who is the true treasure hidden in the field of the Old Testament. I love those words of Matthew Henry, Christ being the true treasure who is hidden in the field of the Old Testament. And as we move through the Old Testament, as we move through that field, as we, as it were, dig in the field of the Old Testament, we find that treasure everywhere, the treasure of Christ. In regard to this psalm, Preacher called Henry Law said, To the believer there is much joy in present state. There is also bright hope of rising to eternal life. And may this joy and hope be our abiding portion. And this is a psalm that is focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the man of sorrows. He had the one, the one who had great faith in his father. And we need to be mindful of that when we consider this particular psalm. And so I want us to look at the subject this evening, a golden psalm. With precious lessons. A golden psalm with precious lessons. And firstly, we see in regard to this psalm of David, dedication to the Lord. Dedication to the Lord. This is the first lesson that comes to us from the golden psalm. Henry Law again said, In all the trials of his lowest state, the mind of Jesus rested on his God. And he says, Happy the members who trust and pray in the meek spirit of their head. How true that is, because we're looking here at the dedication that David had 
Verse 1, preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. Happy the members who trust and pray in the meek spirit of their head. And where is our dedication to the Lord? Our trust in the Lord, our dedication, our devotion, our love for the God of heaven. And here in verses 1 to 2, David shows what is an overwhelming confidence in his God. His trust is placed in the Lord, and the Hebrew root of the word that is translated trust in verse 1 has a reference to fleeing for protection. David here is saying, preserve me, O God, for to thee I flee for protection, to take that thought and to paraphrase that particular verse. And Our hope and our trust as the Lord's people must be in him. If our trust is placed anywhere else or in anything else other than the Lord, then certainly it can be classed as a breach of the first commandment, putting something or someone else before the Lord. Our trust must be in him. Our love must be toward him. Our desires and our priority in life must be toward him. Him. John Calvin, the Protestant reformer, said that this is a prayer in which David commits himself to the protection of God. He does not, however, here implore the aid of God in some particular emergency, as he often does in other Psalms, but he beseeches him to show himself his protect to show himself his protector during the whole course of his life. And indeed, our safety, both in life and death, depends entirely upon our being under the protection of God. And so this is a psalm in general that is prayed by David in general for the general protection of God within his life. And we should be praying for that. As God's people, we should be praying for the Lord to preserve us in life. In verse 2, we see David's dedication in a greater sense. He says here, O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord. And the term is Adonai in the Hebrew. It has that meaning and that reference to the Lord being the protector of David. Sorry, being David's master. The Lord is David's master. He is his protector. Matthew Henry said that it is the duty and interest of every one of us to acknowledge the Lord for our God. As for our Lord, to subject ourselves to him and then to stay ourselves upon him. Adonai signifies my stayer and the strength of my heart. And the Lord is David's master. And what about our dedication? This is the lesson that comes to us from David here. Is the Lord our, is he our master? Is he our protector? Is he the one in whom we put our trust. <coughs> we see that David has no earthly inheritance, but that which the Lord is pleased to give to him. He has a goodly inheritance. We see that verses 5 to 6. The Lord has blessed him. He has a goodly heritage here because of the Lord and because he is dedicated to the Lord. What if our dedication? We could look at this in so many ways. Our priority in worship. Our priority in life, the time we spend with God, the affection that we have in our hearts and our souls for the Lord. Are we truly dedicated? Can we be more dedicated 
and have more love to the Lord? And the answer, the answer is yes. We can never love him enough. We can never be dedicated to him enough. And here the great lesson is, let us put our trust in the Lord. Let us cry out, thou art my Lord. Let us mean that from the depths of our hearts. Lord, thou art our master. Lead us and guide us as we dedicate ourselves unto thee. And when we think of the Savior, this being a messianic psalm, the Lord Jesus Christ was certainly dedicated to his Father, certainly dedicated to the plan of salvation, dedicated to his saints, dedicated to us as he sought to redeem us and to save his people. But we see here secondly as well, the second lesson, devotion to the saints. Devotion to the saints. Verse 3, but to the saints that are in the earth and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. David, his devotion here is to the honor of God and the service of his saints. It says in verse 2, my goodness extendeth not to thee, but to the saints that are in the earth. And the meaning of that phrase is associated with the truth that we cannot earn merit or favor with God based upon our own goodness. And Matthew Henry said, God has no need of our services. He is not benefited by them, nor can they add anything to his infinite perfection and blessedness. Uh, John Calvin uh, taught here that almost all are agreed in understanding this. As if David, after the sentence which we now have just been considering, had added the only way of serving God aright is to endeavor to do good to his holy servants. In other words, our good deeds towards other believers and other Christians and other servants of the Lord. And David here is extending his goodness to the people of God. And if we profess to love the Lord, the outworking of that love is the extension of our goodness to all who belong unto the Lord. David's joy and his love for the Lord overflowed into a delight for the people of God. And that should be the same as us. This is the lesson for us, to have a devotion, to have a love for the Lord's people. Not to have no curse concerning them, or to not be concerned about how they do, but to love them. And in this congregation, to love each other, and to have that devotion toward one another because we are the people of God. And by means of applying this to ourselves, we can think of a number of things. We can think of the importance of assembling ourselves together to worship our God, to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Why? Because we come with the people of God. We assemble ourselves together. We assemble with other believers we meet with God, yes, but we fellowship one with another. We enjoy the blessings of interaction. We enjoy the encouragements of one another. We enjoy that fellowshipping and that friendship one with another. Secondly, we are to help believers in need. And uh, we consider that on uh, the Lord's Day, I believe in the adult Sunday school, Acts 11, there was aid brought from the church in Antioch to the churches in Judea by the hand of Saul and Barnabas. And we need to note that when we come to help believers in need, uh, that need may not always 
be financial. In Acts chapter 11, uh, there was a financial need, a material need there. But sometimes that need is not always financial. It might be providing comfort or encouragement or helping in some particular way rather than a more material sense. And of course, we should desire to help believers in need and to understand that there's a range of help that may be needed and to help as the Lord leads and directs us. There are many different cases and many different ways in which we as the people of God can help one another. Simply praying and encouraging one another is a basic example of that. And we see that as well, praying for each other. And that is something we see in the epistles. Paul prayed for the church. They prayed for one another. If we are devoted to the Lord's people and we love one another, we will pray one for another. We will extend that goodness by praying one for the other. And then encouraging and instructing. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. Uh, we see something of this as well in 2 Timothy 3 verse 15. Uh, Timothy was taught the gospel uh, from an early age. From a child thou was known the holy scriptures. So why did he from a child know the holy scriptures? He was taught the holy scriptures by those who were older in years. His mother and his grandmother. And so they instructed and encouraged young Timothy in the things of the Lord. And we see this here in Acts 18, verse 26. We have a man called Apollos. He was a great preacher, eloquent. But he was missing some important truths. And therefore, he wasn't a proper preacher at all of God because he knew only the baptism of John. And verse 26, and he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. And here we have two believers within the church. They're associated with the Apostle Paul. They heard this man. His preaching was lacking in a knowledge of Christ and how Christ had died for our sins and rose again for our justification. And they heard that they took him unto them, and they spent time with this man. And they expounded and taught the word of God to him and taught the word of God to him more perfectly. There was teaching and instruction and encouragement. They didn't turn around and say, he's missing some truths here. You know, he's a heretic. Let's cast him away and think nothing of it. And there are times when we must turn our backs on those who preach heresy. But in this case, they didn't do that. They brought this man onto themselves and they taught him and encouraged him and instructed him. So much so that when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, Exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them much which had believed through grace. For he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly showing by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. This encouragement, this instruction, 
benefited Apollos, but it benefited the church of Christ. This grace they showed, this love, this encouragement, this instruction. And so, dear believer, there are many ways in which we, as the Lord's people, can encourage and show goodness and love and devotion to other believers. And then thirdly, I want you to see that the third lesson, we are to decline from false worship. We are to decline from false worship. Henry Law made the comment, How prone is man to cast away the true and living God, and with deluded mind rush to idol worship. To multiple gods is to multiply To multiply gods is to multiply sorrows. And we find that the Lord is very particular as to how he is worshipped. Very particular in how he is worshipped. And when we look through uh, this psalm, uh, we... Read verse 3. Oh, sorry, we read. We read in verse 6. I have a goodly heritage. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. Verse 4. Their sorrow shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer. And what do we see here? There's a running after God, a desiring after God, and a fleeing away from this world and from false worship. Other gods are mentioned. Their drink offering of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names into my lips. And so the psalmist is saying no to false worship. No to idol worship. And dear believer, we are to do that. We are not to forsake our Lord. And we are to worship him as he has commanded. And we see this in the Ten Commandments. We see this in the account of the golden calf that was erected by Aaron and the children of Israel. And the account of Nadab and Abihu who offered false fire to the Lord. And on many occasions the children of Israel forsook their God. And they forsook God for the idols of Heathenism. Acts 20, Paul warned the elders of Ephesus that false teachers would rise up and seek to lead people astray. We see that again in the book of Jude. And so we are to be aware of false worship. And the great lesson from this psalm is, the third great lesson we have here, is to decline false worship, to turn our backs on it, to worship truly the living God of heaven. And there are some things regarding worship. Ritual and tradition can be classed as false worship. We see that in the Church of Rome. We're to reject that. Pagan and heathen rituals, as well as legalism, is false worship. We are to turn aside from such things. We are to worship the Lord thoughtfully. What are we praying? What are we saying? What are we thinking as well? Because as we worship God, it's not just what is being said. It's not just the words we're singing or the words we're praying or the words we're preaching. It's an internal thing also within the heart. It's what we are thinking. It's about our affections toward God, our attitude toward God. 
I could say to you that I really like you and I like our conversations and I enjoy our friendship and it means a lot to me and, you know, we should meet for coffee and, and talk and talk and all the time in my head I'm thinking I want to put my hands around your neck and, and strangle you or something. Those words mean absolutely nothing. And when we come to the Lord, while that of course is an extreme when we approach the Lord, what is our heart? Is our heart cold? We may not be thinking thoughts of rage, but are we thinking the right thoughts? And the right thoughts in worship? You know, we need to get home. We need to do things. This is taking too much time. You know, will the person who's praying, you know, they, they need to hurry up. And that's not worship. That's not worship. Our heart is important in worship. We can say all the right things, but it's our hearts. We should come thoughtfully, thoughtfully. And the Lord sees our hearts. He looks on the outward. He sees the outward. We see the outward. We can hear all the right things. But the Lord goes beyond that and he sees the heart. He knows if they're just words. He knows what we are truly thinking. Let us, as we come together and as we pray, let us have devotion for the brethren and devotion for the believers and devotion and love toward the God of heaven. And that is something we must always be careful about and prepare our hearts to worship the Lord. We should avoid as well bringing the world into our worship. The worship of God should be distinct from the world. If you come into our worship service on the Lord's Day or even tonight and you go into a nightclub in Vancouver, you're going to see there's a difference here. Our church is different from the entertainment of the world. Our church is distinct. And the worship of God should be distinct from, the, from how the world entertains itself or how false religion worships the gods of their imagination. And we should be careful to avoid bringing the world and bringing the entertainment into our worship. And our worship should ultimately glorify God. In all that we do, we should glorify the God of heaven. And also, in regard to 1 Peter 3 verse 15 that tells us to be ready to give an answer, we should know why we worship God in the way that we do. We should know why we come with psalms and hymns and prayer and the preaching of the word and worship him as we partake of the Lord's table. Why do we do this? Why do we worship in a way that would be deemed as a more conservative way than many others? It's important to know these things and to know that we worship God according to his word. And then fourthly and finally, we have the declaration of the Messiah. Declaration of the Messiah. When we think of verse 10 especially, for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. There's an application to the life of Christ, the life of the Savior. Matthew Henry, to throw another quotation in here, this psalm has something of David in it, but much more of Christ. Peter quotes from this psalm, the day of Pentecost, expresses the fact that David understood that Christ would rise again from the dead. The death of Christ is implied. And we can see in verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. And as 
uh, the Savior was accused and brought to the cross, he was not moved. He went to the cross for you and for I. He will not be left in hell nor suffer corruption. 1 Corinthians 15 reminds us of his resurrection. And it is through his resurrection that we are assured of salvation and our resurrection. In verse 11, the Lord is the one who shows us the path of life and we must always have him before us. As the children of the Lord, we will experience the fullness of joy in his presence. And so there's hope and assurance and joy for the people of God in these verses. We won't examine them in any great detail, but let us say this, that one of the great Things we learn from this psalm is to declare Christ, to declare the Messiah. This is what David is doing. He's pointing to his Savior. He's pointing to his Master. He's pointing to his God. He's pointing to the one who would die and rise again for his salvation. And that is simply what we are to do by our lives. Point to Christ. Point to our Savior. Declare him. Declare him. Glorify him in all that we do. May the Lord bless his word tonight for his name's sake. Amen.